You're listening to Business Casual, a podcast about making dollars and cents Aha. in commercial real estate. Welcome back, everybody, to Business Casual, making dollars and cents in commercial real estate. I'm your host, Tim, the commercial guy, Churchwell, and we are once again joined by John Napier and Seth Quick, and we are talking about the issue of affordable housing. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thanks for having us, Tim. Thanks. The last one, we were discussing some of the regulatory issues and the honor stuff and where the municipality immediately says no. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, that's the NIMBY aspect. And let's talk about the NIMBY aspect there. I was involved in Chesterfield County in Virginia quite a few years ago. But in a big issue, in a lot of that county at the time was was a neighborhood type of county. And trying to get things approved there, a lot of times is trying to educate them. Well, we don't want this business here. You know, we like being just suburban, all housing and a neighborhood type of feel. And what a lot of, and what somebody educated me at the time was a lot of municipalities like that don't understand that you have to have so much businesses if you also want those services in place. If you want, you know, the fire department and the police department and everything else, either that or you're going to have to pay an exorbitant amount in real estate taxes. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a set percentage that a lot of municipalities use to address that issue. It's like we want this much business per neighborhood or per population in an area. So, John, towards that, you were talking about, you know, in many cases, you know, going to them, they immediately say no. Now, can a lot of that be addressed by educating them on on the honors aspect and why it's honors and why this is a burden and they can't have other things done? Yeah, I, I believe that education is a big part of it. Um, I also think that a lot of it comes down to the attitude of the staff and the leadership in whatever municipality you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes, you want to make sure that there is a there is a good understanding of why you're bringing a project forward. It's not just, hey, I want to make money. It's like, hey, this actually makes sense for this neighborhood, for this area. This is maybe something unique. Maybe it's maybe it's something that's been done five thousand times before. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can say this meets a need, you know, this is, this fits with the character and the nature of this area. Um, and at the end of the day, the, hopefully the city is going to say, okay, you know, we have our scheme, our, our comp plans and, you know, those things that help guide us and help we make decisions. And if it ends up fitting inside of that in the character and nature of it, then they say, okay, well, we think this is, this is a good project, but it, it, it comes down to a bit of an attitude oftentimes first at first blush to say, okay, we want to hear what you have to say, what you're proposing now, is there a way to, is there a way to make that happen? Or does this just not fit? And, and again, not all, never, not every application should, should be approved. I mean, that's, you know, there, there are definitely a lot of considerations and everyone is unique, just like every, every piece of real estate is unique, right? And mm -hmm. every application that you bring for every piece of real estate is also unique. Um, but I think education is a part of it, and I think it also has to do a lot with it, the attitude and the initial disposition of okay. the municipality. So, 
Yeah, I'd like to... You? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, w- I was just going to say, what I think, too, what happens is that a lot of times the reason people are so immediate to say no, um, coming from the planning side of things, you start to kind of get beat down when you have all these, you know, people come with you, these grand ideas, and you're like, yeah, this is amazing. And then when you actually get to the code, like what he mentioned earlier, is that, you know, a lot of times those things just aren't possible. So you kind of immediately want to say, like, no, that's not possible, because you just know getting your hopes up or getting the developer's hopes up is not going to be helpful. So what I think part of the main issue with that is really that we have a development scheme in a lot of cities that haven't accepted yet that they're no longer an expanding city. Virginia Beach is no longer a city of expanding. We're a city of infill. So there's not going to really be, you know, a wave of, of greenfield development, but our development system is still based on the idea that you're having a site that's coming from 0% coverage complete empty field and then turning it into a development of some kind instead of being geared towards taking something that's an existing use and turning it into something else. So you have codes that are really mismatched when 90% of the projects coming to you are redevelopment, but your code is based on having 90% of projects be greenfield development. There's a huge mis- mismatch there in, in the priorities and the, in the way that things are written. Okay. And so how do you believe that we should address some of these? That we can take immediate actions right now. I think one of the easiest things to do would be addressing stormwater problems. So, you know, sites that are infill development are following the same regulations as a, if you were a new green, you know, infill or new development in, you know, Pungo, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're developing a rural site, the city wants you to contain 100% of that water on site or as much as possible. Pungo um, is a local rural area in this market. Yes. For the people that are listening. Yeah, so if you have any kind of green, empty field somewhere, you know, the city doesn't want to have the responsibility, and nor should they really have the responsibility to handle that stormwater. But if you're talking about an area, your downtown, your, um, and in this area, you have like your downtown Norfolk, your town centers, uh, think about like a regional mall. You know, you have this huge site that's already accounted for, you know, usually served by city stormwater systems and by on-site facilities as well. That is going to be held to the same standard as if you were impacting a brand new site, even though that site is already accounted for in the city's calculations for stormwater control. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest problems is that you take a site and now it's 50% of it needs to be dedicated towards stormwater. That just is not financially feasible. Okay. And talking about financially feasible, I mean, from the private market side, developers want to build affordable housing, people. I mean, I can vouch for that. They want to build affordable housing. However, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, it's still a multiple of the price of that land. And we're talking about all land on the land. There's more to it than just your purchase price of that land. So keep that in mind. So your total actual price of that lot that you're building, you know, that's going to reflect on it. You know, a a developer can't build a $200,000 house when it costs them $100,000 for that lot. It's just not economically feasible. So given all that, I mean, they want to do this stuff, but it has to make financial sense for them too. You know, people aren't in business to lose money. Wouldn't you guys agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you have to look at what, what makes sense if, if someone's going to build, let's just say someone's going to build a new subdivision, well, and you have a 10-acre site, right? So if, if the zoning code only allows you to get 10 lots there, you've got to put in full, you know, uh, roads, mm-hmm. curb, gutter, water, sewer for 10 lots, and you've got to spread out that cost all o- over all 10 lots. Mm-hmm. And so if you buy 10 acres for 
a million dollars and it costs another million dollars to develop it, you're talking, you know, you're at $200,000 a lot before you, you move an inch, you move an inch of dirt to go up, right? Before you yep. start even putting the foundation or building a house. And so that right there, again, if we go back to the last episode and you talk about the calculation, if, you know, the, the finished lot cost being somewhere between 20 and 25% of the home's cost, if you're all in at $200,000, right? Now you're talking about a seven, eight hundred thousand dollar home. Mm-hmm. On again, on the financial side of things. So if you took that same ten acre site, and, and again, this is this is all specific as to where this would be. But if you take that same ten acre site, and you could do twenty homes, right? Then you spread out your cost, you know, over twice as many homes, right? You're not you're not having it's not the it's not the same. It's not the same cost. Exactly. And so at the end of the day, you, you want to look at ways, and, and a lot of this, again, is part of the looking at zoning code. I think Seth brings a, a great point is, you know, when you've developed a zoning code towards just building a brand new city and developing sites that have never been developed, you know, that's, that's a zoning code geared in one way. But when you when you start looking at adaptive reuse, uh, when you start looking at, different areas in which you need to redevelop, you know, a city. Um, and then you really need to start looking at ways you can adapt that zoning code to to incentivize and to for builders and developers to revitalize areas. Otherwise you're just gonna get a lot of a lot of areas, commercial development and other areas that are just gonna be dilapidated and they're never gonna work because the regulations are so onerous that you can't make it economically feasible to redevelop it. Adaptive reuse is a huge topic in our country right now. Uh, The general public focuses a lot on turning vacant office buildings, for instance, into apartments. And we've addressed this issue, you know, in prior podcasts. So folks, go back and listen to the prior ones if you haven't already. But talking about that, Seth, I'm going to get this from you. Are we seeing a lot of adaptive reuse for housing in our market? There is, but not of, it's very uncommon to see it for a post-1950, 1960s building. Yeah, so before the 1950s, most buildings would have been built relatively similarly in the sense that you don't have um, HVAC systems necessarily, you don't have uh, air conditioning. So they were built with large open spaces for cross-ventilation windows in every room. What happened in the 1950s, both with building uh, improvements in in development and uh, engineering, is you got these deep floor plates. So as soon as you hit like 1950, there's a huge departure where the buildings get wider and deeper. It's just not feasible for the most part to build something where you have 30 or 40 feet of space that's unusable because you can't have bedrooms and a, in a place with no light. Most people are not going to rent a building or buy in a building where mm-hmm. you have one or two windows. So you've seen it a little bit in downtown Norfolk, a couple buildings uh, with enough uh, public incentives but for the most part, what you've seen is all of those pre-1950s buildings have been converted over to housing. Um, I'm not sure that there's many left in Virginia Beach or in Norfolk that are really eligible for something like that. And it's in our, I actually live in a building that was changed. It used to be, uh, uh, I believe it was a cotton warehouse on the water in downtown Norfolk, mm-hmm. and they converted it to condos. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but... Uh, and we've addressed this before. Uh, a lot of studies that we've seen are if the building footprint is over 15,000 square feet, it doesn't make a lot of sense to convert it to housing. Because, again, it's that interior aspect. Nobody wants to live in a unit with no light. 
And there's also, I mean, if you think about it, how many, if think about the office you've been in or how many bathrooms do you have? How many kitchen sinks do you have? There's mm-hmm. not that much plumbing. So when you add 20 units to every floor of a building that has four bathrooms and one sink, you need to add, you know, drill through every single section of that floor plate 20 stories up to add plumbing, to add electrical, to add all of these things. So it's, by the time you actually do all of those, it's often, uh, unfortunately, more financially feasible just to tear it down and start over. Mm-hmm. But I think some of the ways of looking at, you know, reusing some of those buildings is to really kind of densify and fill around it. Um, in my mind, I think about uh, a lot of the buildings around Town Center, um, outside of, you know, the, the developed area like Pembroke Square and that kind of area. You have all these buildings that are probably too deep to turn into something else, but if you could densify around them with housing, and um, you could might get new life and new business opportunities for those buildings. Okay. And, den- and folks, this brings us back again, and this is for both of you, but density is a huge aspect that we talk about. So whether you're going up or out, it's how many units per acre you can put on there. And it could be apartments. It could be houses that are for sale. And that's what we're, you know, that's to what we're referring when we talk about density here. The, you know, if I can put 100 units on 10 acres, for instance, it, you know, all that cost per land with everything that goes into it is going to cost me substantially less than it does if I can only put 10 units on it. Uh, multifamily in particular, I represent some multifamily concerns, and I'm also a developer in that regard. And I tell people, for us, it's not how much the land cost, it's how many units I can get on that land. It's how much am I paying per door rather than per acre. So, if, you know, and that's what it's all about. Oftentimes, you know, we'll pay a premium for property that somebody was thinking, is, hey, this is, you know, to put houses on because we can get a lot more density on there from an apartment side. A lot of municipalities just don't want density, for instance. Even in your urban infiller type of areas, right? They don't want the density. They don't want more units and all that entails with that. How do you get around that with a municipality? Either one of you. Yeah, that's that's always a that's always a an interesting question, a tough question. I mean, it, it, you've got to you've got to look at it, and and again, let's let's just presume for a second we're talking about a place where density is going to make sense, right? In a place where it, it makes sense um, from an infrastructure standpoint to, to bring the density up. Um, I, I think you, you're going to talk up to the municipality, hopefully, about, you know, what is, it, what is the net effect of this on a tax revenue standpoint? And you also have to think about it on a broader level than just the immediate tax revenue from this one project. Say, okay, well, this, this one project is going to bring X tax revenue you know, on a real estate side. But then you also have considerations like, okay, well, you have these residents and they're going to be shopping. And so what is the, what's the economic and fiscal impact of this project on as broad a level as possible to really look at what the true, what the true impact is and, and, and benefit as the case may be for, for the businesses, for the community, you know, and, and the municipality is often looking at, well, this is going to, you know, you're going to bring in this many school children. You know, you're going to be driving on you're going to be driving on these roads, and you're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. So, what's the cost of the municipality? But I think you have to you have to really look at it as well, saying, well, you have more residents, you have more available housing. So, if you bring in a huge employer, 
they need somewhere to live. And you mm-hmm. talked about that. You mentioned that the last episode. So you have to be thinking about, like, how do we bring in – I mean, even if you're just talking about the existing businesses in the area, you want quality, affordable housing. I mean, I, I've, I've been primarily focused on how do we get quality, affordable home ownership, right? Mm-hmm. How do we find ways to res- – reform the zoning code and be able to possibly give certain incentives to developers to be able to do affordable home, like uh, for sale housing, you know, because that again is, is a huge way in which you build community is through that, through that home ownership and finding ways to uh, very quick example in the great recession back in 08, 09, 2010, I remember there was a developer in our area who did a housing project and I mean, in 2010, which is about the lowest that the housing uh, market got for us, you know, it was really at the bottom. They couldn't keep the units fast enough because they were selling units, you know, basically in the in the high 100s, low 200s. They had that you could buy in the high 100s, low 200s. There's always buyers. There are always buyers in the affordable range, even in the worst time, worst market that we've had in the last 50, 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. And it just it just reinforced me. Oh my gosh! There is always this market. You will always have buyers for these these affordable homes. We just have to be able to find those ways to provide that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know an important thing. So the, there's an organization called Strong Towns. So they kind of talk about um, urbanism. I would like to think of them as like. Uh, more conservative idea, ideology of Yimbyism. So they think about those fiscal impacts, um, the community impacts of density and, and development. And one of the things that they look at is, is density as like a wealth multiplier. You know, the more successful a place is, the more the land is worth, the more you need density to justify it. And it creates this whole cycle of agglomeration. You know, when a young professional working in town center can now live right next to town center, then they happen to live next door to the person who they start a business with. They open that business in the next section of town center that, and so on and so forth. And it creates this agglomeration effect that makes the economy more productive. The more people you have living in a, in one community and closer together, you're sharing costs, not just um, sharing costs for the municipality in the sense that, you know, every park you have in that area is serving way more people. Um, to kind of not go off on too much of a tangent, but there's this idea that if you have a thousand people, you might have a gas sta- one gas station, but you have ten thousand people, you might only have three, even though there's ten times as many people, because each one can serve that many more people. You don't need that many more. Um, it's not a one for one replacement, so it sort of works the same way with density. You don't need that many more schools to serve more population. Um, you don't need that many more parks, and so on, and so forth, fire stations, etc. Um, so it's really a multiplier of whatever investment you've made it just goes that much further when it's serving a denser, more compact community. Well, that's a great way of looking at it. I like that. Yeah. Now, how do we get around the traffic issues that are often complaints, gentlemen? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that people need to realize, there are traffic engineers. That's literally a job. If people didn't know that, there are people who their whole entire job is to study and figure out traffic movements and and different things of that nature and people need to understand that commercial development by nature produces a lot more traffic than residential does and so that's that's obviously a consideration um, but I think when you're talking about adaptive reuse so if you have a, a failed shopping center 
or maybe even a mall. We talked about, you know, shopping malls are obviously kind of dying out in many respects. And the adaptive reuse is, there's a lot of talk about that. But then people say, oh my gosh, you want to bring 500 apartments into this form of commercial development, that's going to create so much traffic. Actually, it's it's going to reduce the traffic levels than it would had now it will increase the traffic to a degree because if the mall's dying or if the shopping center's dying, then no one's going there. There is no traffic due to it. But if they were to just replace what, what had been there before, right? If there's a, a like an old, like there's like a Walmart or a conven- or a, a big box store and a and a grocery store, if you were to just place those back there where they have been, the traffic is going to be far more than if you you end up replacing part or all of that with a residential development. So. That, that goes back to what you were talking about earlier in the education level. And that often has to do with the communities around. They say, oh, my gosh, you want to put several hundred apartments here where there used to be commercial development. That's going to drive up traffic. Actually, that's really you're reducing the traffic load on that area for what its current use is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, did you? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would also say, you know, in urban planning, we study a little bit about traffic engineering, and you know that's obviously plays an important role in in how you lay out your city and do um, rezonings and everything like that. I think an important thing to remember is that you also have traffic is very dynamic. People make decisions every day about you know growing up. I grew up in um, Grassfield in Chesapeake, so there's a toll bridge that they built a few years ago that really connects you to the rest of the city. If you want to go anywhere else in Hampton Roads, you have to pay this dollar toll or you got to go around for 20 minutes. What happens is people just end up linking their trips. They are think more about, oh, well, we're already on this side of the bridge. Let's go do all the stuff we need to do before we come back. Um, it, it's a very dynamic thing. So I think the same thing happens with, you know, if you're building housing at the oceanfront that's affordable, people have concerns about traffic, but how many of those affordable units are being rented to people who live at, who work at the oceanfront and were formerly driving there? You're having people who have commutes that have shortened. So what you don't see is that now on Lynn Haven Parkway, there's less people driving from Lynn Haven Parkway to the oceanfront, and so on and so forth. Same at Town Center. Um, if you're building more housing at Town Center, the people who shop and work at Town Center have a two-minute drive or a four-minute drive. Or maybe if you're um, brave enough to cross Virginia Beach Boulevard, you would walk to Town Center. So there's not really a good accounting for that change there. Um, you know, that's very interesting. There's actually a service out there. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of them. But... They track cell phones. So this is how you get, like, walkable traffic count, like down at the beach and everything now. And they track cell phones and where they go in and out and what they do. That would be interesting to bring up and have them commission a study like that on something, saying, hey, okay, so why was, there self, why was the cell phone usage before versus the same identifiers now that something like this is in place. I wonder if they could do something like that. Is it is that using like metadata? They no. They tra- well, they track the actual cell phone usage. It's a subscription service that a lot of retail specialists use. Okay. Uh, it's not cheap to get. Right. Uh, I have limited access to it through CCIM, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't really played around that much with it. This is still fascinating, and I believe that we're actually going to continue with uh, and go over to another discussion on this stuff. But in the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us. Join us next time as we continue, and we're going to address, in a nutshell, what do we do about truly solving some of these problems? And this is Tim, the commercial guy, Churchwell, and I am joined again with John Napier and Seth Quick, and we will be back next time. See you then. Thank you. 
Business Casual podcast is recorded in the Hurrah studio and edited by Mark Harlan.